Accelerating detection to deployment is critical to support missions in contested battle spaces. Ultra provides resilient, complementary communications, command and control, and cyber capabilities to support joint missions. From the cloud to the edge, Ultra Solutions connects the battle space to deliver the information advantage. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Today, we are launching a six-part series on multi-domain command and control sponsored by Ultra Intelligence and Communications. And joining us is Dr. David Pustai, uh, the company's Senior Vice President and Chief Technology Officer. David, thanks so very much for joining us today. Great. Thanks, Vago. Thanks for having me on the uh, chat today. It's a pleasure having you on. And before we get started, uh, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report and North Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors not only this series, but our command and control coverage overall, and our coverage of uh, the Air and Space Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS, and Leonardo DRS and Safran are sponsoring our coverage next week and the weeks beyond of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, next week in Washington, D.C. David, welcome again. Uh, Great to have you on the program. Uh, The Pentagon has outlined its latest approach to realizing what it claims to be its top priority, the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System. Uh, Commanders in the Pacific are going to be steering requirements that will be fed directly to the Pentagon's Deputy uh, CIO or Chief Information Officer, Dr. Kelly Fletcher. Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall has made the services air battle management system a priority uh, as well. You know, even though the technology of this is uh, intriguing and obviously commercial technologies that'll play a big role in this, you know, on connectivity and and what have you, some of the most tectonic changes are going to come from new cognitive technologies to help us better understand the battle space, but also make decisions at blistering speed. That means greater trust in a network and its ability to queue up decision sets um, that in turn are going to drive important cultural changes. And, and, And you and I have had a couple of conversations on that before this program. What are the technological changes that are going to play the biggest role in shaping how the United States military uh, and its allies and partners command and control their forces in the future? Yeah, thanks, Vago. Um, Great uh, being able to discuss this important topic uh, with you today. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the technological priorities that have been outlined um, by the DOD and and frankly by the DOD for the past uh, few decades, um, Heidi Hsu, uh, before her, uh, Mike Griffin, you know, there are a few areas that are kind of uh, kind of pervasive, right, and that kind of pop out at you. Uh, one being trusted AI and autonomy, um, human-machine interfaces, and certainly kind of the future generation of wireless technology. I think as, as we're looking at as a kind of defense industrial base, you know, it's imperative that we're, you know, continuing to invest in these areas and, and pull in commercial technology where it makes sense. Um, I think, you know, you had, you had um, Mike Brown of the DIU on your podcast uh, a few weeks ago. And, um, you know, a lot of the advancements that are being made today uh, are not being driven by the DOD. They're being driven by commercial. And I think when you talk about things like cognition and AI, uh, certainly, you know, the ability to have explainable AI uh, and driving that into all of our systems and offerings is probably for me at the top of the list. If, if we're, if we're going to have systems um, that we're going to be able to trust. Um, it, it's it's going to be um, it's going to be essential for you know warfighters to be using 
uh, these tools that we're, we're developing and whether it be an ISR system or comms network um, or even, even weapons. I'm going to get to cognition in a minute, but to talk to you about, for example, technologies like 5G, uh, General Jim Jones, uh, who was uh, the national security advisor for President Obama, former U.S. European command commander, as well as former commandant in the Marine Corps, sees 5G as actually not just a national priority, but indeed uh, a battlefield enabler uh, in, in, in many respects. I mean, what is the role and the most cutting edge commercial technology that may have the most direct applicability to help us solve what is arguably one of the most complicated military problems, right? Connecting not just older generations with systems, but actually shaping the kind of command and control system that we need to help us make decisions at the speed of relevance in a future conflict. I think you have to look at too what 5G enables and really 5G is kind of a combination uh, of, of, of many different types of technologies, um, whether it be the router, um, whether it be the base stations, the ability to take data with reduced uh, latency and with increased bandwidth and get it out to the edge as quickly as possible. And really the vision that's that's been established by the DOD and one that you have to be thinking about and one that we're thinking about too is what's 6G, what's next G, right? You think about you know 5G, enabling us to, you know, kind of manage data and video uh, more effectively at the edge. When you think about 6G, this is now getting into more, how do you have um, AI at the edge, right? How do you enable that processing and ability to, to make these edge devices at, as powerful as they possibly can be by getting the data out there as quickly as we can? So it, it's really a combination of technologies. These technologies have been there uh, for, for a number of years now, certainly um, in the commercial telecom space, it's now how do we, again, how do we accelerate a lot of this commercial technology into the battle space, which has been um, a bit of a challenge for the DOD. Let me take you to the question of uh, cognition. Uh, one of the first pr- uh, people that I discussed cognition and command and control with was Tony White uh, from your UK business, who is one of the most intriguing thinkers I know in this uh, space, not to blow sunshine uh, at him. Um, and, and we were discussing research on how systems can be controlled by the human brain without having a USB port in, in your head. And, and, and in the years since then, we're showing greater progress at being able to do that. Now, senior military leaders on both sides of the Atlantic are talking about the critical role that cognition is going to play in battle management, command and control, and war fighting in, in, in general. What does that mean and why is it so important and how do you actually realize that? Because some of this research is very cutting edge, but each of the services is actually doing it in a lot of work. I know the Air Force has and uh, uh, Air Force, uh, Lieutenant General Q uh, Highnote uh, has been working on this with, with his team as well. Walk us through what it means, why it's so important and how we realize it. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we talk about the speed of relevance, we really need to think about what, you know, what at what time scales are we operating and, and at what time scales will we need to operate in the future? Uh, if you think about the most significant threat uh, facing our nation right now, um, and, I, and I would argue that, you know, the DoD would say it's, it's hypersonics, and particularly maneuvering hypersonics, right? The ability to be able to react in nanoseconds uh, to address these threats is essential. To provide some context, by the way, of this reaction time, you can think about one nanosecond is to one second as one second is to about 30 years. And so you're not gonna be able to do that as a human, right? So when we say cognition, certainly that that implies that you are um, being able to think through something or operate, have the computer inform the human in a manner 
um, that operates at this level of speed, right? And so um, by, by, by doing that um, and doing it in a way that's, you know, potentially tied back to our, to our weapon systems and, and doing it um, in a safe and ethical way, um, you know, when Kathleen Hicks announced her AI and data acceleration uh, initiative last year, she said, you know, the goal for cognition or goal for AI is to be able to, is that it's deployed in a safe an ethical manner at the speed of relevance. And I think th the thing that we need to be thinking about too is that our adversaries, I believe, care less about the safety and the ethical nature of employing AI and cognition into their systems, right? They have um, less um, you know, concerns with collateral damage and their cultural norms are far different than, than ours, right? They are willing to kind of embrace um, what AI and cognition means um, on, on a number of systems more so than we are. I think um, I'm a little nervous, you know, um, by what we are putting in place in terms of, you know, standards and practices to ensure trust. And I, and I know that's important, um, but in this uh, world in which our adversaries are moving at a much faster pace and at a pace with potentially more, you know, machine learning engineers being applied to the problem, um, I wonder at what point does it not matter anymore how much trust and how much safety uh, are in our systems? Well, so, so, um, so you're raising a critical point because right now, you know, we, we all watch movies where folks are sitting at computers and they're seamlessly controlling satellites and, you know, uh, drones are targeting things and we're in constant connectivity. But the reality, um, which... Uh, um, Chris Burroughs uh, so well wrote in his book, Kill Chain, right? I mean, we are fat fingering our way through this, uh, right? Um, I'm on the phone with you. I'm on a chat with Lori and uh, Sandra's on another phone. And we keep kind of going back and forth to be able to do some of this uh, battle management and control. And, and it's worked out for us. But the thing is where we're going is a very different place where the battlefield is going to be moving much more quickly. We will be against adversaries that don't have the same sorts of standards, right? I mean, our, the conversation with Tony White began with literally, you know, man-machine interface with, you know, uh, you know, the, the Chinese may not have a problem with actually putting a plug into somebody's head, for example, because they may have a couple of prisoners they can practice on, the likes of which maybe we're not uh, able to do. I'm uh, not making ac accusations, but again, this is uh, obviously a question that's been in the public debate. How do we need to think about that balance point that you're talking about uh, of what is ethical, what is right, but ultimately how much trust is, is, is reasonable in a, in a system in which your adversary is also going to try, and we're going to talk about security in a minute, is going to get in there and actually deny and degrade uh, your connectivity, your access to information, right? I mean, ultimately information is power and your adversary is going to want to blind you to that whether through emissions, cyber, uh, what, what have you. What's, what's that balance point for you then when it comes to trust? That's a great question. And, you know, as an engineer, you think about what are the metrics associated with uh, trust? And, you know, I know it's actually a big, hairy problem is, you know, around validation, verification of AI systems. How do you juxtapose that against what is, you know, what you need to be able to do to respond and react quickly. You know, one of the things that, that we've been thinking about, and that is kind of a holy grail problem that uh, even DARPA is now addressing through the, uh, the sector program is, you know, how do you, how do you take um, and interpret that, that intent that might be provided by a, a commanding officer 
and um, interpret in a way that uh, allows you know all of the uh, the battalions, um, the, the the edge unit, units, the platforms, all of our systems, just to operate as uh, effectively as as one unit really is possible. We're you know a highly expeditionary force, um, or at least that's um, um, that's that's where we are currently operating. You know when when you think about the information that is needed again back to 6G. Um, if you're going to have these systems that are really doing a lot of that heavy processing at the edge, you need the 5 and 6G uh, capabilities to be able to do that processing um, and, and enable that uh, recommendation, you know, that battle space recommendation to be interpreted by the machine and to be fed back to the warfighter so that wherever the humans are in the loop, they can make those decisions in an appropriate amount of time. And, you know, that balance needs is, is really, you know, between kind of connectivity comms uh, against AI is, is really something that is kind of dependent on mission. Obviously, we want things as, as quick as possible, but we know that you know, there is always a processing time and latency that is inherent in any system. David, we've been, but we've been engaged sort of in the technological revolution and certainly the connectivity revolution for a long time, right? We haven't yet fully realized uh, 5G, but we're going to 6G. But every time there's a giant leap in technology, uh, like the adoption of smartphones, it, it actually drives a whole bunch of cultural, educational, and a whole bunch of other changes, some of which are very unanticipated. It's very clear that we don't, we're not just going to do JADC2 to replace that which we have with something that's better. What are the cultural changes, the intellectual changes, that the training changes we have to make if we're going to realize actually the potential of where this technology is going to change us, which is not actually a like-for-like like like replacement, it's actually going to be an exponential change and it may fundamentally change how it is we do things. Yeah, it's a great question. Thanks, Vago. Uh, and it's, you're exactly right. It's not all about technology. And certainly that's something that, uh, that I think about a lot. Um, you know, interestingly enough, I'm also a musician and, and I was just, uh, just kind of uh, playing piano in a, in a club the other night. And, um, you know, when you're improvising, you do it in a way where you have to listen to, other musicians look at the other musicians and, and make sure that you're all on the same page. And, and, and it made me think that, you know, the way that our DOD is structured right now, you know, they're, they're really um, performing like classical musicians, right? Everything's kind of written out on the page. We know what's coming next. We know what the dynamics are. And we really need to be thinking about almost operating as jazz musicians in the sense of being able to improvise do things on the fly, embrace that kind of uncertainty or that fog of war. You know, one of uh, recently I heard one uh, DOD uh, official kind of bemoan the fact that on these JADC2 experiments uh, in the US, there's not enough free play that's occurring. And I think that's something that's concerning, right? We have, we have things that are prescribed. And I think some things that are not prescribed on these experiments, and I'm not, you know, I'm not sitting behind everyone's shoulder on all of these uh, JADC2 efforts across the services. But, you know, it made me think that this free, this ability to free play, this ability to experiment um, is, is something that we just need to be embracing a little bit more. You know, I, I, I listened to your, your podcast with um, Mike Brown a few weeks ago, and he just he also talked about, you know, this uh, commercial technology and the ability, you know, how they've been... Um, able to transition, you know, 50% of what they developed at the DIU onto warfighters and, you know, not to, not to scrutinize other um, kind of innovation centers within the DOD, but I think that's, 
that's something that we need to be embracing more of the OTAs um, and, and, and how do we rapidly feel things. When you do that, though, you have to inherently embrace less trust in those systems, right? You're not out um, ensuring that everything is performing at, at five or six nines, um, you know, dec decimal places, right, of, of accuracy. And, um, you know, right. so I think, I think this whole notion of how do we embrace experimentation more and those acquisition models that allow for experimentation and, and ultimately, you know, transitioning those uh, capabilities that are that are proving themselves to be beneficial. Let me ask you though, the the massiveness of the JADC2 challenge that we're trying to achieve and, and how we actually, right? It's, it's one thing to say, we're gonna enter a whole new uh, ecosystem, right? I mean, if I was somebody with a Motorola flip phone, I'm pretty much have a very limited role in this uh, ecosystem. I'm not gonna get the benefits of, of the capability. And yet in the military, we have the equivalent of the Motorola flip phone and, and not only you know handfuls of them, but hundreds of thousands of them when it comes to some of these radio systems. We're trying to connect this to a backbone architecture, a new architecture and, and make, how do we need to think about how we create the new and connect it with the existing and the old, right? And on top of that, overlay, overlay the need for greater security, uh, right? For, for this, these networks that we're creating. How do we need to conceptually think about mixing the old with the new in order to be able to get something that is of exponentially greater value than the sum of its parts? And I know that sounds trite and I'm not trying to give you a marketing, <laughs> a marketing moment here. But how do we need to think about the problem if we're going to execute a workable yeah, solution? And, and, uh, great question. I think you know we we can't and and a lot of what kind of Brian Clark and Dan Pat unpacked with um, their report, the one size fits none. I love that title, one size fits none, in uh, you know Hudson Institute. Um, and what we really can't, you know, there's this pipe dream, this holy grail that you have one network that rules them all, right? Or one one ecosystem that rules them all. And, and really, I think we, you have to build up right the way that i'm thinking about it is kind of like in a mesh network you know you have you have nodes in a mesh network and you have some gateway nodes that allow you to kind of connect between uh networks uh, in, in in efficient ways and i think similarly to how kind of the sco operated where you know you're taking legacy systems and you're trying to build out new capabilities i think you have to embrace these legacy systems but then in incorporate them incorporate kind of new features and new systems uh, alongside them, you know, this, this recap, recap cliff is, is staring us in the face. And, um, you know, there's, there's no way that you're going to get away, you know, move away in, in one fell swoop from, you know, legacy networking systems. But I think we have to be careful moving forward. I think we have lessons from the past, um, you know, with, with, with jitters, with, uh, DCGS, um, you know, net enabled command and control, uh, you know, where we have these, these one size fits all kind of, dreams or aspirational objectives um, that kind of that kind of fall on their face. Um, we, you know what I what I want to make sure is really that you know 20 years from now and you know 20 years ago it was net centric operations. Now we're talking JADC2. 20 years from now, you know, we don't want to have a, another named effort, you know, whether it's you know it's something called cloud-based operations or quantum operations, you know, in the 2040s, I want to make sure that that the people and I'll, you know, I'll, pro I'll still be around then. Hopefully, that we're working this problem. It, it's not, um, it's not evolved in a manner that's even worse than where we are today. 
right? So I think, again, back to my comment around experimentation, you know, we do need to, you know, just like as whoever you eat an elephant, eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? We need to be thinking about this in kind of this modular experimental, um, you know, methodology rather than solving it all at once. And, you know, how does, how does the work that's being done with uh, SDA tranche one, tranche two now, um, how do you connect the space to the upper tier, the space, you know, to, uh, you know, the, the tactical edge or undersea and, and doing this in a thoughtful um, modular way, modular architecture, rather than, you know, one, one size that fits all. You know, we've been trying to do these experimentations, but too often the criticism from industry, right? I mean, it's terrific uh, what Mike uh, and his team uh, have managed uh, to achieve, but the, but the challenge is, that every time we do these experimentations, then each of the services go back and they start to say, oh, well, now we need different experimentations. And the concern by the people on the industry side is that these are science projects that actually aren't going to go anywhere. The more time that goes by, the more outdated we are, the more we're actually delaying that modernization. We're sort of buying more of the same. What does the nature of adoption, David, need to be? And what do the cycle times have to be, right? And the architectural approach to take the good idea to test it and, and actually to be able to deliver outcomes to start eating the elephant because it's not abundantly clear that, you know what I mean? You need a bib, you need a knife, you need a fork. Um, I, I don't know if that's the best analogy, right? I mean, where, where is it, you know, how do we get to the point where we're, we're actually able and start to do this? Because I, I've been covering sort of this, the, the JADC2 evolution, whatever buzzword you want to put around it for quite a long time. Are we improving? Yes, but we tend to be improving at the edges rather than at the cores. And each of the services is kind of doing their own thing, which kind of complicates it in its, in its own right. What's the architectural approach to this, the speed idea to deliver through experimentation to deliverable? And I think, you know, what was it just last week that um, DepSecDef Hicks announced that the CDO is going to be providing over CDAO is going to be providing oversight to these JADC2 efforts, you know, what does that oversight mean? It's certainly not a new PEO that's being stood up to fund the integration, right? Um, and so while it's good aspiration, I think, you know, this, you know, as I think back to those those nodes in the network, if, if the CDAO can come in and actually drive um, some of that effective connectivity, I think that's going to be incredibly essential. But at the end of the day, where does the funding come from, right? And the funding comes from, the PEOs and from the services. And so, you know, aside from any major acquisition reform, um, I think the intentions are right, but I think it's going to be slow. I think, you know, and, and we're operating at a pace where this change is going to really occur over the course of the next few decades, wherein it really needs to happen over the next two to three years. And um, the way that we're incentivized, you know, you've been covering this industry for 30 years, right? You know that things, it's very difficult to get uh, you know, this aircraft carrier turning, uh, you know, very quickly in just two to three years. So there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot that needs to change. How important is a combat cloud in solving this particular problem? And more vexingly, how do we address the problem of the connectivity part of the secure connectivity part of this equation, especially if we're going to try to realize this again in emission denied uh, in connectivity denied uh, environments where the resilience of the system will be very, very important. And I know there are limits to what you can say about this, by the way, on the cyber and on the resilience side of things. 
but what's the role of the cloud and what's the way to ensure the highest degree of security possible, uh, even if there's a breach, e- even if the other guy captures equipment or what have you? You know, independent of what the architecture is, I think, and what cloud allows you to do is to have kind of increasingly modular uh, architecture, right? It allows you to deploy solutions. You know, if you look at if what's being done, uh, the work being done at Kessel Run um, with um, container containerized software, um, uh, leveraging uh, Kubernetes to manage uh, the containers, you know, deploying um, software in a way and, and, and not just the software, the software on the hardware um, uh, on each of these nodes and whatever architecture that you design, it, whatever it is that you're doing, you have to have a system that is modular and open, right? Which has been something that's been foot stomped for now, you know, 15 plus years. Um, but also, you know, from a security standpoint, the other, the other major thrust is around zero trust as, as you well know, and you've had a number of guests uh, talk about that. So I think, you know, I think, Whatever that architecture is, I think it's it's got to change from how it's been traditionally defined. Um, you know where we've where we've had um, vendor lock systems that are closed systems that you know we, one of the things that we um, one of our you know main products at Ultra is the air defense systems integrator it allows to connect across all the different J series messages. Uh, it's a data link gateway, right? How, how do you continue to expound on that? And that's what we're, what we're thinking about. How do we build off of that and enable this connectivity across these systems? So whether it's combat cloud or whether it's a different, a different architecture, it needs to be driven by, the, by kind of the open vision, uh, the open standards and in, in this zero trust environment that I think we need to embrace, right? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the survivability and it's the resiliency of being able to operate through whatever kind of attack uh, that you're under. Let, let me just go back to something you said earlier, uh, David. You know, what, what does our approach to risk have to be for this network, um, right? Because there will be vulnerabilities. It has to be resilient. How do we have to think about risk? Because, right, I mean, we're always trying to achieve systems that are, you know, right, as close to zero risk as we can get. Folks talk theoretically about being more risk tolerant. What's the risk calculus the risk mindset we need to have to try to execute something this ambitious and important. Yeah, yeah, and I think you know, with with speed, um, in order to deploy something with speed, we have to be willing to deploy uh, systems that have an increased amount of risk, not only in terms of their uh, ability to be uh, reliant and resilient. Um, and so I think that's that's. We, we have to move away from um, how, how we've always operated with ensuring that things are, are, are perfect. Yes, when it comes to munitions and weapons systems, um, that, 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 is, that is still relevant. But I think, you know, this is, it's, we have to be thinking about a different type of strategy because the world has changed, right? We're now facing a, a significant adversary that has far more engineering minds being applied to it and, and arguably, um, you know, equitable resources now being applied to solving these problems. Does our risk posture need to change from where it's been over the last, you know, since frankly, you know, World War II, um, you know, where, where, where everything must be, you know, entirely assured in terms of not only how the information is getting passed to, from one place to the next, but 
um, in terms of you know our ability to to manage our weapons and weapon systems effectively. So, I think it needs to change. At what point, you know, at what level, you know, do we have a completely untrusted system? I don't think anybody wants to be to that extreme. But somewhere in the gray area, I think we need to move away from completely trusted, um, you know, to embracing you know kind of partially trusted systems. The challenge there is that you also now have to deal with things like you know counter AI, right, and spoofing and and uh, you know manipulation of data, right. There's there's a lot that goes on. Um, or now, if we begin to accept less trust, but our adversaries are playing against us that way, um, you know, how do we how do we mitigate that? So it's it's you know it's a it's a non never ending cat and mouse game. Um, but I think if we require that that complete trust in systems and that you know minimized risk, it's going to impair us to a degree where we'll not be able to compete uh, in the battle space in in the upcoming decades. David, absolutely fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. And among the kind of questions that we intend to delve in uh, as part of this series, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you again for having me on.